Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Probably going to reveal something here I've never revealed publicly. He said, I hate your guts. You win every week. <laughs> you know, he said, you beat Davey every week. But I did more promoting Hut Strickland. Basically, try to get, you know, get in a ride in a cup car. We get up in the air, and Davey looks over at me and says, high five. One, two, you know, two guys from Alabama went up there and kicked everybody's butt. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. A few weeks ago, Steve, I got a direct message on Twitter from David Light, and he was asking me for my shipping address. And I had interacted with David a little bit 
So I didn't really mind sending my address to him. And honestly, I figured that he just had a stash of old Winston Cup scenes that he wanted to get rid of. Maybe he's cleaning out the garage or the attic or whatever. That has happened a time or two. <laughs> I'm aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he asked me for my address and then a week or two passed by and I didn't really think anything about it. Well, one day last week, I got a package from David and it was not just a bunch of old newspapers. It was one of those really, really detailed University of Racing, Wood Brothers Racing, 1971 Mercury Cyclone diecast cars. And not only was it a David Pearson diecast car, it's signed by David Pearson. You are kidding me. No. David Pearson signed that, that car. Yes. I, I have a feeling that might be worth something. I could not believe it i mean wow. that was awesome well not only did he send that but david also sent along a press pass card autographed with one of the certified autographs or whatever of richard petty really so david pearson richard petty in one package how much better can know. it get uh, right now, David's got to be your best friend. Well, man, I got to tell you that left me absolutely stunned. And I sent David a message and I thanked him profusely. I mean, that was one of the most thoughtful gifts that I have received in a long, long time. And he wrote back and he said, I appreciate what you and Steve do in more ways than I can express. And this is just my way to attempt to give back to that. How about that? That is great. I do not know what exactly I did to deserve such a fantastic gift. But David, man, thank you. I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, David, you almost held him speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, on this podcast, that doesn't happen very often. And I can tell you that. That's for sure. <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the first of what will be a three part interview with Hutt Strickland. And this week, Hutt talks about the origins of that nickname. And when I asked him that very first question, how he came across the nickname Hutt, he actually said that he was probably going to reveal something that he had never revealed before in public. I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but he talked about how he got that nickname. He talked about meeting Pam Allison, Donnie's daughter, and they have been together ever since. I think he said they met in 1980. So he married into that family. He also sets the record straight on not being an official member of the Alabama gang. He dominated on short tracks before making the decision to go to Winston Cup. He eventually wound up with team owner Rod Osterland. He went to drive for Bobby Allison, and then he finished second to Davey at Michigan in June of 1991, which was, of course, a huge accomplishment for him professionally, being able to finish yeah. that well, but then finishing second to Davey, which yeah, I think made it some... even more special. Oh, yeah, that be, had to be very special. And then Hutt did leave Bobby Allison's team at the end of the 1992 season. So I, I would say that that probably created a little bit of an awkward situation at Thanksgiving or Christmas. <laughs> Basically, it's a family deal. 
And those are not always easy when it comes into racing. We saw that with uh, Richard and Kyle Petty. There's some difficult times there. Those are sometimes kind of interesting when it doesn't have anything at all to do with racing. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we pretty much ran the gamut of the early days of his career. And then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the June 27th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That was the race at Michigan where Davey won and Hutt Strickland finished second. This issue also carried coverage of a benefit for Wendell Scott, who had recently passed away. Junior Johnson returned to the garage after a four-race suspension, which, Steve, he was (laughs) not happy about. (laughs) Not at all. It was done for the Winston, where Junior was tagged with an illegal engine. And initially, that penalty was a lot steeper than what it turned out to be. Uh, That's right. Finally, in this issue, there was a big story in the scene on the circuit section where everybody is denying silly season rumors that eventually came true. (laughs) (laughs) That is normally the case. It's funny how that works out. Back in the day, those of us in the media would ask a driver what he was going to do. We've heard you were going to leave this team and go to that team. And the driver would deny it, sternly deny it. So we go back to the media center and say, well, boys, he's gone. <laughs> we knew he was leaving. That's all it took. And the more they deny it, the more likely it is to be true. <laughs> That's right. Steve, this week we also have new Patreon support from David Bradley and Robin Scarberry and increased support from Jeff Wilson. So David and Robin and Jeff, thank you. And Steve, I was fortunate enough to meet Robin and his family. They came by Debbie's Snack Bar on their way home from Darlington. (laughs) How about that? And they were just as impressed by Debbie's Snack Bar as you were. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, it's a very, very neat place. And I can understand why you like going there. It's like uh, Cheers in Boston. Everybody knows your name. So, listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, and if you do happen to be coming through Hamptonville, North Carolina, on 421 or I-77, stop in, and I will treat you to a meal at Debbie's Snack Bar. (laughs) Now, there's an offer they can't refuse. (laughs) If you can, help us out on Patreon. That address is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support you can do that at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast sometimes when i ask a question i already know the answer so i just want to get it on the record but this question i actually do not know the answer to how did you come up with the nickname Hut? Well, I'm probably going to reveal something here I've never never revealed publicly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, but I guess as time goes on, you get older and uh, it, it, you get to where you don't care anymore. So uh, basically, um, it, it, we, we had uh, working at my dad's salvage yard down in Alabama. I grew up doing that, working his. My mom had one about 10 or 15 miles away from my dad's and 
I worked between both salvage yards, helping them pull parts and what have you. Anyway, we had two guys that, that come to work there uh, one time, and uh, it was two black guys, and uh, one of them was named Hutt, and the other one was named Cuz. And uh, so uh, when they started working there and what have you, uh, as a joke, people would call my, call my dad Hutt and call me Little Hutt. And then over time, uh, uh, for some reason or other, they, I guess my dad got bigger and, and uh, started beating people up. And <laughs> he just, uh, he, he, uh, he said, my name, ain't, my name ain't Hutt, you know. And so uh, anyway, uh, they dropped Little from, from Hutt, and I became just plain Hutt. And, uh, and it's just a nickname that stuck with me from uh, all the way from, you know, probably 10 years old all the way up to now. Now, how did you get inducted into the Alabama game? Well, when did that come about? Well, the Alabama gang, let me let me back up and let me clarify this because my daddy-in-law will probably beat me up if I don't say this. <laughs> uh, uh, the Alabama gang was originally uh, Bobby Allison and Donnie Allison and Red Farmer. That's the three. Uh, and they are um, – you know, a, a licensed team. Uh, okay. You know, and uh, right. it's, okay. it's those okay. three there are, right. the, are the are the official Alabama gang. Uh, over time, Neil Bonnet come along, and then then Davy and and myself, and, uh, and 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 I guess what happened over time, the fans, uh, if you were from Alabama, um, you know, just said, "Well, you're part of the Alabama gang." And, uh, you know, we, we get in an argument. We got into an argument one time here not long ago on Facebook. Not really an argument, but, um, you know, I get tired of people saying, you know, you're, you're you know, uh, especially, you know, different ones saying, you know, you're not, you're not part of the Alabama gang. I said, well, let me tell you what. I was born in Alabama, I, in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Alabama. So, and that's more than any one of the other three can say. You know, so so therefore, I'm more Alabama gang than any of those three. Whoa, but, but, okay, uh, all right. But anyway, so that's that's where that come about. But you know, it's it's I'm honored to be 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 you know uh, affiliated with that group and love them all to death. Uh, they're all family to me, and uh, you know they're they're special people. And uh, you know, like I said, I'm honored any time to get mentioned when they are. You know. Well, Bobby and Donnie, if you're out there listening. <laughs> I I did not mean to step on any toes. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're they're good with it. Now, how did you and Pam meet? Now, you you mentioned your father in law, and of course, your father in law is Donnie Allison. So, yep. how did you and Pam meet? Well, it was in the summer of nineteen eighty. Uh, her cousin Davy uh, and myself and. Uh, another guy named Jimmy Kitchens that some people around Alabama might have heard of. Uh, another guy named Sammy uh, San Filippo. His dad owned a speed shop there in Birmingham. Uh, we were all riding down the beach in Panama City, Florida, uh, hollering, screaming to all the girls in the in the in the in the Bobby Allison van, and uh, you know we were getting a lot of waves and all that stuff. And anyway, Davey said, uh, "Hey, there's Pam and Lisa over there on the side." You know, I said, "So." I said, he turned in there. I said, "Who's that?" He said, "Well, that's, uh, Pam is Donnie's daughter." I said, oh, "Okay, you know, well, I knew Donnie had a daughter, but I'd never met her." And so anyway, we pulled in there, and, and uh, so Pam and her friend walks up to the driver's side of the van, and Davy was driving, and she said, uh, "Oh, who all y'all got in there?" And he said, "Oh, I got uh, you know Hut Strickland and D- Jimmy Kitchen, Sammy, whatever." Anyway, uh, so she. 
made a beeline come around the right side of the window and she stuck her hand stuck her finger in the you know, and said, I hate your guts. You win every week. You know, <laughs> said, you beat Davey every week. You know, I hate your guts. You know, so I just rolled my window up on her because I used to win. And this was Pam. Um, this was Pam. Okay. Yep, yep. All right. Telling and, you that she hated you. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. I got and you. so anyway, uh, uh, you know, we, we, I rolled the window. I, I, I was, at that time I was pretty hated around the area because I won a lot of races and what have you. And uh, nobody likes, you know, winner. And uh, anyway, so, uh, but anyway, Make a long story short, a couple of weeks later, um, somehow or another, we – I don't remember if I called her or she called me or she sent me a letter or apologized. I don't remember. Something something happened, and uh, we exchanged phone numbers via a postcard or something, and uh, and we've been together basically ever since. You know. Now, you were in a Bobby Allison racing van? Yep. Yep. And wouldn't you know it, the one person who would not be impressed – by Bobby Allison racing van would be Donnie Allison's daughter. Donnie Allison's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she wasn't impressed with the van at all. <laughs> now you did win the Dash Championship mm-hmm. in 1987. How did Winston Cup? 1986 when we won that. Don't yep. don't let the facts get in the way of okay. a good story. <laughs> I got it off of okay, Wikipedia. Hey, listen, I got it off of Wikipedia. It has okay. to be. It has okay. to be true. true, true. <laughs> Okay, so you win the Dash Championship mm-hmm. in 1986. How did Winston Cup first come into the picture? How did you make the decision, or was that just the next step, or what was going on there? Well, I I had run an awful lot of um, late model races and and won a lot uh, championships, uh, track championships, things like that. And uh, when the opportunity to come up to drive for uh, actually a friend of mine there in Haleyville, Alabama, a guy named Billy Knight. I drove for him for off and on for I guess a year, and then then the opportunity to come up to drive for Richard Mash, uh, who who uh, Michael Waltrip and uh, Dean Combs name a few guys that had awful good success with him. But that ride came open, and uh, I said, "Man, that's golden opportunity." So um, went there and done that for a year. Um, won the championship. We won an awful lot of races together. Um, I actually won way more than we lost. And, uh, but, um, in 87, when it rolled around, I, um, they wanted me to stay, had a, had a real good sponsor, uh, coming on. And, and I said, no, uh, you know, I've done about all I can do in this division. I want to move on to the next step. Uh, took a big gamble. Uh, took, uh, uh, 87, when 87 come along, I had an opportunity. Another guy m- moved in the shop there with Richard Mash to start a Winston Cup team, uh, got him a, uh, by the name of Skip Janey. Um, it was a yellow number 76 car, looked like a 76 ball. But um, uh, we went and run uh, three or four races that year together. Um, you know, had a lot of promise with that team, uh, and just but we never could acquire the sponsorship. And basically uh, in 88, uh, I took a year off. I did probably – eight or ten races, uh, you know, going anywhere that I could take my helmet and get in the car. Uh, but I did more promoting Hut Strickland, basically, try to get, you know, get in a ride in a cup car. And uh, by winning the Dash Championship, it it it, it got, got my foot in the door with Pontiac. And then the Pontiac people knew who I was and all that stuff. And, and then when the opportunity come up to go drive for Rod Osterlin in the Heinz catch-up car, it being a Pontiac, 
you know, that was another plus there. So uh, we just, you know, was able to uh, basically get a full year with with the Austerlin car with the Heinz catch-up. And, uh, you know, it, it um, you know, things didn't go right. We didn't have a lot of money, um, you know, on that. And, uh, but, um, you know, we just, um, you know, 1990 come along when it went, um, basically started the season with nothing. Uh, had a couple – rides here and there and then the ride opened up the 12 car opened up for with bobby and uh then i kind of went from there and that kind of kind of set the stage for the rest of my career you mentioned running for rod osterlin and he of course was making his return to the sport who was the rod osterlin that you knew well you know i had read heard uh an awful lot about him um you know he he he, um you know from when he was in the sport before um, you know, I was expecting a lot more out of that team, uh, you know, from the start because I felt like, uh, just like they were before the money was there, they had to, you know, had the funding to do it and, um, come to find out, uh, you know, the funding and stuff it was taken to do it, uh, you know, in 1989 was nothing like it was in 1979 and, uh, you know, basically took, you know, um, you know, it was it was pretty minimal in dollars. Uh, you know, the high sponsorship. Uh, you know, and, and but you know, it gave me an opportunity, and I used it as a stepping stone. It was good for me, but um, you know, it, it was somewhat of a letdown because I thought, you know, things would 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 have turned around and got better, and they didn't. You know, basically. Rod, of course, had given Dale Earnhardt his mm-hmm. first big break in the sport, and then. Rod sold the team uh, midway through the 81 season. Did you talk to Dale before, during, or after taking that deal? Or is talked that... to Dale afterwards, uh, more during, I guess not, you know, after I got the deal with him. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, a little bit as things was going on. And he, you know, he, he you know, he was really, um, you know, don't stick your neck too far out on a limb type thing. And, but, you know, uh, I was, um, you know, I, I was I was in a position there where I was using it as a stepping stone to try to get to a better ride, right? You know, and 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 um, didn't like having to having to do that, but it was one of the things, you know, yeah. th- that you had to do. Yeah. You know? Speaking of Donnie, he he was your crew chief for a handful of races yep. with Rod. Mm-hmm. How did that dynamic work? Um. <laughs> Worked good with me. I, I, you know, I enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Donnie was at a good – it was a good time in the cars. Uh, Donnie, um, Donnie got our cars all basic, uh, you know, did away with a lot of the tricks that we were fighting. Um, you know, our, our, our performance became uh, – we was ta- taking less, able to take less and do more with it. And uh, But Donnie had reached a point um, – you know, he wasn't getting paid, and then and then you know we'd show up and a, uh, you know, Goodyear wouldn't give us any tires, you know, and and things like that. And it just kind of got to the point, you know. He said, "Hud, I'm sorry, I hate to bail on you, but I can't, you know, I can't take this, you know." And I fully understood, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and and I was I was committed for the whole year, and you know, I wish it would have worked out, but it didn't, you know. I did not know this, but you. Evidently drove one of the Days of Thunder cars for Rick Hendrick at mm-hmm. Darlington early in 1990. How did that come about? Um, well, um, 
actually two ways. Um, um, Jim Freeman's wife, Carolyn Freeman, she was the liaison from NASCAR to the folks that was the moot, the film crew at Days of Thunder. And, um, they needed a, um, you know, somebody to drive one of the cars from time to time and, uh, for filming, what have you. And so, uh, basically that's how it, how it come about. Uh, what, what kind of sped up the process, um, uh, a little bit in 80, excuse me, in 1990, uh, we were down there with, um, TriStar Motorsports. We, we was the fastest second round, fastest qualifier for the, for the Daytona 500. Um, and, um, anyway, uh, we were running in the 125 secure spot, one of the 125s at the time. And, uh, Ken Schrader was driving for uh, Hendrick. And anyway, he got in the wreck, and um, uh, basically in the wreck, uh, he was trying to make a pass or something. I don't remember whoever he was racing with anyway. Both of us wrecked, you know. I got caught up in their mess, basically. And uh, anyway, when that happened, then uh, Rick offered us a backup, one of the backup Days of Thunder cars to run in Daytona 500 in 1990. Okay. And that's basically where, where that relationship started. And then, uh, you know, we, which basically when he brought the car over there to us, it was, it was far from being a race car. It was, it was, you know, windows was out of it. It, it was a lot of crush panels. It didn't have an engine transmission. We took, you know, our, our wreck car and put stuff in it. And it was kind of a mess. But anyway, um, as, 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 Time went on the rest of that year. Um, you know, we had had a couple opportunities to do, um, you know, drive the drive that car, and it was it was pretty cool. I enjoyed that. How did the deal to drive for Bobby come about? Um, well, Mike Alexander was 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 their driver. Uh, Mike, uh, and I guess it was in eighty nine in December of eighty nine. He went to the Snowball Derby and had a uh, got a head injury, um, and he started the season with them, uh, but he wasn't fully recovered from his head injury, basically. And uh, as time went on, uh, I'm guessing a handful of races down the road, six, eight, ten, I don't remember. Um, anyway, they they had called me and said, "Hey, you know, would you be interested? We'd love to have you." And so, uh, what it turned out, it was a, you know, it was a by far the you know one of the best rides that I had I had driven at that time and of course the way things had turned out I ain't so sure it wasn't the best ride I had you know one of the best rides I had throughout my whole career uh, I had a lot of good people um, the owners I loved the owners to death you know Bobby had two or three owners that was you know loved them all to death great people uh, got along good uh, you know the crew we had good times together it was just uh, it was a good marriage you know um, I, I, you know wish we could have won won several races and we had opportunities to do that it just didn't work out june in 1991 you go to michigan and you finish second to davy mm-hmm. what do you remember about that day um well there's a couple things um you know the cool thing was uh i flew up there with davy in his own plane and uh you know we we you know we'd all i flew I actually flew a lot of places with him not just there but anyway um and when we was flying back home, uh, I remember uh, the one thing I do remember is didn't really have anything to do with the race, but but the cool thing we get up in the air and Davey looks over at me and says high five, you know, 
day one, two, you know, two guys from Alabama went up there and kicked everybody's butt. And, and, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. Um, but, um, you know, the race, uh, you know, it, it, it was a tough race for us. Um, he was in a position, he didn't want to take out me or his dad's car. And, and I was in a position I didn't want to take him out either. And, uh, because I wouldn't have a ride home, but, <laughs> but, but no, seriously, it, it, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a hard fought day for, for both teams. And, um, you know, he just, uh, handled a little bit better than I did down the straightaways as Bobby used to say. And <laughs> that was what got us, you know. How big a deal was that to you personally after everything happened with Osterland and kind of- Oh, it was huge. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, you know, it was real gratifying. Um, you know, it wasn't a few few races after that. Rod come back, uh, saw him, I think, at Darlington or somewhere after that. And Rod said, hey, if you ever want to come back and drive for us, we'd love to have you again, you know. And, of course, I said, no, thanks, Rod. Thanks, Rod. But I'm I'm set right here where I'm at, you know. But um, it, it was extremely gratifying, you know. You did wind up parting ways with Bobby's team late in 1992. Was that a deal – where you were, where you already had the deal to go drive the twenty-seven car for Junior, was that already in place, or how did that all work out? Um, well, part of what happened, I'll tell you a little bit leading up to that. We we had we were falling out of races for a lot of stupid stuff. Um, you know, for whatever reason, not pointing any fingers at anybody, um, but you know, we was having a lot of things happen and. Um, I felt like some of it was just neglect, you know, maybe. Uh, just weird things happening, you know, brake lines breaking, different things, you know, that don't normally happen. But if you was watching, you'd see the tire rubbing the brake line or something, different things, you know. Different, you know. Anyway, um, so I, I told Bobby, you know, I t- sat down and talked to Bobby a little bit, and 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 Bobby's, um, you know, he, he just said, you know, this is what we got and this is how we're going to be, and, so okay, I fully understand, you know. And so uh, um, when the when the deal came open, um, I was kind of torn between the twenty seven and the, well, I didn't know at the time it was going to be the twenty seven. It was uh, originally going to be the twenty two, yeah. and uh, with Mike Beam, and uh, uh, because it looked like Sterling was going to be moving on, and uh, and then of course Richard was, you know, stepping out of the forty three because kind of tired, kind of tied in between the. You know, both of those teams, and uh, anyway, uh, uh, and was talking to both of them. Um, you know, the deal would come up with McDonald's and and Junior, and I thought, man, that was that was a you know a golden opportunity. You know, and so uh, I jumped at that, and um, you know, just um, you know, we had okay success for a race or two, but we couldn't ever seem to hit our stride at all. You know, just one of them things. I know that doing business in NASCAR is difficult enough a lot of times, but then you add the family element into it. I would imagine that can get kind of interesting. How tough was it to leave Bobby's? Um, very. Yeah, it was very. Um, you know, made it made it awkward a little bit at the family get-togethers. Um, um, you know, because not just Bobby, but but. Uh, uh, Bobby's brother-in-law kind of managed the team, Tom Kincaid, and just you know it, it, it was kind of a uneasy deal around it. Like I said, family get together family functions, but over time it 
you know, it got fine. I mean, we, we all accepted it, what it was, what it was. And, um, you know, and, um, you know, we just, we just moved on basically. Let's get one thing straight right out of the box in this segment, (laughs) just because Hutt Strickland is from Alabama. And just because he's married to Donnie Allison's daughter, Pam, that does not mean that he is a full-fledged member of the Alabama gang. Yeah, but you know what? That's the way Hutt was viewed. He was included among those drivers that were the Alabama gang, and it just emerged that he was, to our minds, a part of the Alabama gang. But you're about to tell us that he didn't really consider that, right? And of course, Bobby and Donnie and Red, they were all from the Hueytown area, while Hutt was from Calera. And that's only about 45, 46, 47 miles, somewhere in there. Right. Apart. But evidently, that wasn't close enough for full-fledged induction into <laughs> the Alabama gang officially. And I asked Hutt that. You know, I asked him how he got inducted into the Alabama gang, and Hutt set me straight because evidently he had been set straight at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I repeat, um, there are a lot of us in the media and fans alike who just automatically included him as a member of the Alabama gang and really never saw it otherwise. Davey and Hutt and Jimmy Kitchens, who a lot of people would know as a former Bush Series driver, I know that he's done a lot of spotting. He's also from Alabama, but evidently not a member of the Alabama gang officially. (laughs) (laughs) They are cruising around town at the beach in a Bobby Allison racing van. All right. So they're in the van and they thought it's pretty doggone cool to be cruising around town and with the decals and everything on that. They thought that was going to get them some attention. And who do they run across? But Davey's cousin, Pam. Davey pulls the van over. And Pam evidently just basically just proceeds to rake Hutt over the coals for winning so much. She doesn't like him (laughs) because he's beating Davey. That's not exactly the best way to start a romance, wouldn't you think? (laughs) Well, evidently something worked out because they wound up with each other's phone numbers and they have been together ever since. Who would have thought that they would have been together this long? When it started out with Pam just berating Hutt for beating Davey, I mean, uh, Hutt should have said, I don't want anything to do with her. But he didn't, did he? Well, that's basically like every relationship starts out with the woman berating the man for something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I said it. I'm not taking it back either. (laughs) I'm not not touching that one. (laughs) Well, Steve, all this got me to wondering, how did you meet Margaret, your wife? Well, it was in a student union at Old Dominion University. I saw her from a distance. Now, I am a big Sophia Loren fan. I always have been. I looked across the room and saw her standing there. Sounds like a Beatles song, doesn't it? Anyway, I looked across (laughs) the room and I saw her standing there. And I said, boy, that is as close as Sophia Loren as you are ever going to get. So I went after her. Well, how could you not be a Sophia Loren fan? (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine anybody not being a fan of you. You're right. 
But uh, that's exactly what I said to myself. I said, you know, this is your best shot. You better go for it. So I did. Hey, worked out. One of the greatest movies of all time, Grumpier Old Men. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> I'd rather kiss a dead moose's butt. <laughs> <laughs> and that movie is also very funny for another reason. Burgess Meredith steals the movie. If yes, you've he never does. Seen it, if you've never seen it, go see it. He is hilarious. Hutt got his first full-time ride with Rod Osterlin, who, of course, was returning to the sport after selling his team midway through the 1981 season. And Steve, you were working in the sport when Rod sold Dell Earnhardt's team, and you were also working in the sport when Rod came back. What did folks think about Rod coming back to the sport? What was the consensus about all that? Well, Rick, to be very honest with you, it didn't receive a whole lot of attention. There was no big fanfare or anything of that nature, just as it was when he entered the first time before he got Dale. When he got Dale and they started making uh, some good headlines, well, that was a different story. And then, of course, when he sold the team and Dale did not like the fact that J.D. Stacy now owned that team and left to go eventually to Richard Schiller, that was all news, too. But Rod coming back was not really... Uh, drawing a lot of attention back then. Well, I would have thought that it was at least a sense of, oh no, here we go again. Well, there was on the part of some of us in the media. I think that's why we didn't pay it a lot of attention because we thought, some of us thought that Rod had come back in for some reason or another, but was he in a situation where he could make the team grow and last? So there were a lot of people very dubious about that. Turns out we're pretty much right. Hutt wound up leaving Rod Osterland and he was replaced for the first time <laughs> by Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> now notice I said first time he wound up going to drive for Bobby Allison and June of 1991 Hutt gets a second place finish at Michigan. And not only was he the runner up, He's the runner-up to Davey. This is a part of the story that I didn't know until I talked to Hutt, but he said that he had flown up to Michigan with Davey, and after the race, they get back into the plane. They get up into the air. Davey looks over at him and basically gives him a high five. That was a significant accomplishment for both drivers, to, for Davey to win at Michigan and for Hutt to finish second to him. I know that Hutt was not part of the Alabama gang, but after that race, on that particular day, flying back with Davey, he had to be part of that gang emotionally. It was a high point. Well, it wasn't too bad for a couple of kids from Alabama, one way or the other. It was a right. good day for both of them. That did turn out to be a high point of Hutt's time with Bobby's team, and he did leave that operation toward the end of the 1992 season. And who is he replaced by in the 12 car? <laughs> Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and as I mentioned to Hutt, business is business in NASCAR. But when there's family involved, I would imagine that it takes on an entirely different dynamic. Because like I said in the intro, dealing with family on a day-to-day -day basis in normal everyday life, that can get interesting enough. But then when you pile business on top of it and NASCAR on top of it, it can 
make for some tense times, I would imagine. I'm sure that families operating any business you care to name have moments where things aren't so good and it strikes them much harder emotionally than it would in another situation. Well, that's the same thing in NASCAR. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And Hutt had to experience that when he left Bobby. Hutt has a chance to run either what will eventually become the 27 McDonald's car for Junior Johnson or, and I didn't know this until I talked to Hutt, he was also, from what he said, in the running to take over for Richard Petty at Petty Enterprises near the end of the 1992 season. I did not know that either. Talk about choosing between two absolute legends of the sport. He evidently had to choose between Junior Johnson and Richard Petty. Well, that's probably a good thing because that he was in the running for either one of those teams clearly indicated that people thought he had talent. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. The June 27th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup saying carried coverage of the Miller Genuine Draft 400 at Michigan. Davey Allison led eight times for a total of 107 laps, and he beat Hutch Strickland, who was driving for Davey's dad, Bobby, at the time, by 11.7 seconds. He was on rails that day. It was also the third win in the last five races for the 28 team and fourth in the last six, if you include the Winston. Yeah, that team was on a roll that year. Well, let's consider this, however. One of those wins was at Sonoma, where NASCAR penalized Ricky Rudd for getting into Davey on the next last lap. So we'll just put a little old asterisk next to that one. <laughs> <laughs> They said, go ahead. I still got the win. <laughs> he got the trophy and the money. So, right. Not coincidentally, Larry McReynolds had joined the 28 team, the Robert Yates racing team, after the Atlanta race earlier that season. Davey said, we knew things weren't like we wanted them. The communication on the team wasn't like we wanted it. We were having some tough times, but Robert and I tried to keep morale up, and then the opportunity came up to get Larry McReynolds. We knew that would be our missing link. Personality-wise, he took all those guys from not knowing what to do, of being scared to do anything, to wanting to be at work and anxious. Not just when we win, but even if we lose, they're eager to be in the shop the next morning. It used to look like people were looking for places to hide on Monday mornings. Well, that's Larry McReynolds. Have you ever seen Larry McReynolds go off the handle? Have you ever seen him 
just go crazy at a racetrack or anything of that nature. He's as even-tempered as they come. But add to that his knowledge and the fact that he's a great hard worker that benefited that team tremendously. A great hard worker, absolutely. He has a very strong work ethic. And I thought it was great in this issue, there was a scene on the circuit item that really laid out what Larry Mack brought to the 28 team's table. Linda, Larry Mack's wife, said, Larry absolutely hates to mow the lawn if he doesn't have time to finish it off with the trimmer. Ask him to rearrange a room full of furniture, and before you know it, he'll get out a measuring tape to see that both ends of the sofa are the same distance from the wall. (laughs) Now, that's what I call trying to do a darn good job. Now, that's what I call being a perfectionist. (laughs) Larry himself added, some people in this business try to make it a nine-to-five deal, and some even get away with it. I just can't do that. Larry's first race with Robert Yates Racing was at Darlington, where Davey finished second. And Larry said in this SOC item, we showed up at the garage gate at 5.30 a.m. and NASCAR let us in. Daylight savings time hadn't started. So for about the first hour, Raymond Fox had to hold a flashlight (laughs) for us to work. (laughs) Uh, Have we mentioned Larry Mack's work ethic yet? (laughs) That ought to take it right there. The car that Davey drove to Victory Lane at Michigan that day was nicknamed James Bond because it had stayed undercover for so long. Bond. James Bond. Davey had won with this car at Charlotte the year before, but then wrecked it earlier in 1991 at Atlanta, which pretty much wiped out everything but the roll cage. And they very nearly scrapped it. But then the team decided to rebuild it. They brought it out for the Winston, and Davey won. They ran it again in the 600, and Davey won again. And then they ran it here at Michigan. And Davey won. <laughs> That's hard to believe right there. Taking the car that's headed for the junkyard and win races like that in it. Unbelievable. Well, try this one on for size, Dave. Not only was it the third win for this rebuilt car, it was also the third win for the engine that Davey ran that day. Now, that is really incredible. Rick, you know as well as I do. The teams don't really like to use the same engine twice if they can avoid it or at least totally rebuild it and put it out there. So that's just incredible. Well, that certainly doesn't happen today at all. No, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Robert Yates said it was a backup engine at Charlotte and we put it in and won the race with no practice. Then we put it in the morning of the Sears point race and one asterisk with no practice. (laughs) (laughs) And we put it in yesterday and practice was rained out and we won with it again today. It's a great engine to run when you don't get any practice. It obviously knows what to do. Now, how many team owners or engine builders are going to say, Hey, I've got a great engine here, but don't practice. (laughs) Hut Strickland finished second, despite a disastrous pit stop early in the race. Hut pitted on lap 36 during the event's one and only caution 
but when right front tire changer Mike Bassinger placed the new tire on the hub, all of the lug nuts fell off, and he had to rethread them by hand. I, you're talking about disastrous. I can't think of anything more disastrous than that. Again, this was the only caution of the day, and this race took less, just a little bit less than two and a half hours to complete. My kind of race, Rick. My kind of race. <laughs> <laughs> so Davey and Hutt and the rest of the field, they were basically just out for a little Sunday drive. Hutt came back from that pit stop to lead three times for a total of 27 laps before winding up second to Davey. Hutt said in the sidebar, I was having a blast out there running with Davey. He seemed to be beating me a little bit on the straightaways, but we could make it right back up in the corners. Our motor ran good today, so I certainly can't fault that. Bobby Allison said, we put Hutt in the car because of his ability, not because of who he is married to. He relief drove for Davey early last year and really illustrated that he had the talent. When we were able to get him lined up to drive for us, I feel like that automatically gave us a step in the right direction. Now, there were some guys in the media, Rick, who really thought that it was Hud Strickland's marriage to Pamela that got him the ride at Bobby Allison Racing. I never really thought that because Bobby was a sensible type of guy, and Bobby knew talent when he saw it. And if he saw something in Hut, who am I to argue with that? Well, I'm glad he said what he did up at Michigan because that really cleared the air. There was a little pit pass item in this issue reporting that Hutt and Pam planned to move into their new home on June 24th, which just so happened to be Hutt's 30th birthday. It was located just behind a mobile home they lived in, and that had been ransacked by thieves while they were in California for the race at Sears Point. I did not know that that their home had been ransacked while they were in California. That has got to bring about a really low, low feeling in someone to come home from a trip and see the house just totally ransacked like that. I can't, I can't think of anything worse. Well, I would be willing to say this. I bet that new house had a security system. <laughs> <laughs> you think? There was a feature in this issue on a benefit to help pay the medical expenses of Wendell Scott, who had died on December 23rd, just the year before of spinal cancer. There were several souvenir vendors on hand and a benefit auction was held. They had uniforms and sheet metal and die cast cars and what all ever else. And the event was organized by Bill Mangum and Charlie Hyatt. And Bill said, Charlie said, wouldn't it be nice? And I said, wouldn't it be wonderful? Our vibes just caught up with each other. And they did this to help out Wendell Scott's family and all the expenses that they had built up because of his illness and everything. We talked a little bit last week about people not appreciating exactly how good Richard Petty was way back when. And I think the same goes for Wendell Scott. Today, I think we've all heard about how much of a struggle racing was for Wendell but I don't think we fully understand the full impact of what that actually means. Well, it means a lot when it came to Wendell Scott. Of course, he was the only black man racing in a white dominated sport. And you can just imagine what he had to face 
in that situation. Not only that, though, he didn't have the money it took to race competitively. He just did it because he loved it. And not having the money meant that he had to work on his cars as well as drive them. And that was not an easy thing. It was a very, very difficult road that Wendell walked. Franklin Scott, Wendell's son, was there, and he said, I remember one time we were in Riverside in 1968 or 69. I was talking to Richard Petty after the race. He was getting ready to catch a plane at the airport, and he asked me, when do y'all think you'll be getting back? I said we figured we'd get back into Danville on Thursday. We drove straight through. We didn't stop except to change drivers because we had to be in Bristol on Friday. It was tough, but we managed. We slept in the truck. We slept on the ground. We ate out of cans, and we went to the back doors of truck stops to get hot food when we could. Occasionally, if we could find a black hotel and could afford it, we'd stay the night. Most of the time, we lived in our cars, but we enjoyed it. We were a close family, and we still are. Well, a perfect illustration of the kind of hardships the Scott family faced in racing was what Franklin said a little bit earlier. If we could find a black motel and could afford it. Now think about that for a minute. Steve, Michigan was the first race back for Junior Johnson and crew chief Tim Brewer and the 11 car after they were suspended for four races when an illegal engine was found in the team's car following the Winston. Jeff Bodine had been injured in a crash during practice for the race, so Tommy Ellis filled in and was originally suspended as well. <laughs> but that was lifted after an appeal. Tommy Ellis said, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm just That's a substitute right. driver. <laughs> it's exactly what he said, and he had a good point. So for once in his life, NASCAR took up for Tommy Ellis and, and agreed with Tommy and said, okay, you know what? We'll keep the fine in place, but the four-race suspension, uh, never mind. <laughs> Junior and Tim and Tommy were initially suspended 12 races. <laughs> 12. But that was also reduced by the appeal to, quote, unquote, I think just four races. Four races, yeah. I think that was an indication that NASCAR might have been a little bit fed up with Junior. This wasn't the first time he did something shady when it came to the Winston. <laughs> and, and to be honest, Junior and Bill France Junior never really got along all that well. They certainly did invite each other to dinner. The engine measured 361.856 cubic inches, nearly four inches over the 358 cubic inch maximum. <laughs> After Junior and Tim were suspended, of course, Flossie Johnson, Junior's then-wife, was listed as the car owner, and the car number changed from 11 to 97. Junior was back at Michigan. The suspension was over, and he was still spun out and half-turned over by the penalty. <laughs> Junior said, if you're going to cheat, you're going to cheat with 25 to 30 cubic inches over. <laughs> Goodness gracious. That, that fit the pattern Junior always said about cheating, which was, if I'm going to cheat, I am going to cheat big. 
<laughs> 25 to 30 cubic inches over. Okay. All right. That's the only thing that would do you any good. Two or three cubic inches won't do you any good. It's like one drop of water in the Pacific ocean. That's what it amounts to nothing. You can tell when someone is cheating to gain an advantage by the manner in which he cheats. That's what makes it so stupid. And Steve Jr. went on to kind of take on what you said, that it kind of took his integrity into question. That's but exactly he, right. But he continued and said, I think the penalty dictated they felt I was a liar. And I didn't like that. It was an exhibition race, and we know what the rules are. We've won it twice. We're not stupid enough to go and try and win a race knowing the motor is going to be torn down. It was just a case of a guy picking up the wrong crankshaft and putting it in the engine. They were trying to prove a point. We got Junior Johnson. We'll nail his hide to the wall to show everyone we mean business. And that's exactly what I thought. I thought that NASCAR had finally reached something of a breaking point with Junior, and they were just going to try to prove once and for all they held the upper hand. And Junior obviously thought that too. Now you were talking about Junior had tried other shenanigans in the Winston. What oh, oh what could well, you ever be talking about, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, I don't think we have to review the first Winston to raise a few eyebrows, do we? Just because Daryl Waltrip flew that engine to kingdom come just as the checkered flag comes out. I don't think that's any reason to raise an eyebrow or anything. Do you? Uh, you go right ahead and think that way, Rick. Go <laughs> right ahead. <laughs> I loved this story in the scene on the circuit section about silly season. And in it, Bill Elliott vehemently denied reports that he would be leaving Melling Racing at the end of the year to go drive for junior Johnson with sponsorship from Budweiser. And he said, and cows fly, I guess they could, if they had big enough wings, or if you put them on a 747, this is like five years ago when it was being said that I was going to drive a Chevrolet Lumina. That's still being said. People say they have been to the shop and seen it, but I haven't found it yet. It's hilarious. It's better than Peyton Place. The way people around here talk, whatever they want to believe, they can believe it, and we'll just continue to race like we need to race. It's just silly season. Wow. Magnificent performance, Bill. You deserve an Oscar for that role. I'm telling you. Well, you know what happened at the end of the year? Bill <laughs> Elliott left Melling Racing to go drive for Junior Johnson with sponsorship from Budweiser. So apparently the media had nailed that particular rumor. <laughs> yeah, I never wasn't the only one. <laughs> Team three crew chief Barry Dodson said that he couldn't see rumors that Mickey Gibbs was going to be replaced as driver coming true. So he denied that Mickey Gibbs was going to be replaced. Mickey was let go after Daytona. The very next race on the Winston Cup schedule. <laughs> Are you surprised? So, Steve, that opened up another question for me. With everybody denying rumors that eventually came true, where did you consider the very fine line to be between a small fib, an outright bold-faced lie, 
or somebody just playing their cards close to the vest? Well, most of the time, I thought every driver was just playing the cards close to the vest. And for a lot of different reasons, perhaps he hadn't made arrangements with his old team owner to let him know that he's leaving. Perhaps there was some sponsorship issue. Perhaps some contracts hadn't been signed. They couldn't just come out and say they were going to move on. So they tried to keep it as close to the vest as they possibly could until everything was totally arranged. But that didn't matter. Most of us in the media printed the rumors as the rumors and told ourselves, all right, let's just wait till they make an announcement because it's going to happen. I could understand when somebody told me that they couldn't talk about something. If I went to them and I asked them about a certain situation that was cropping up or that I'd heard about or whatever, if they said that they couldn't talk about it, I absolutely respected that. But you and I both have had people look us dead in the eye and outright lie to our faces. Now, that's where I kind of drew the line. You know, you have a right to feel that way, Rick. And I'll be honest with you, I did feel that way myself sometimes out there. But in the end, in the end, you just had to take it all with a grain of salt and understand this is how the game is played. If a guy told me that I can't talk about it now, that would tell me, hey, it's going to be true. He's dodging the issue. But in the end, I just go back to what I said earlier. I firmly believe that most of these drivers just tried to keep things as normal as they could until they got the complete go-ahead that everything was settled. And then they could go ahead and make their move. That's the way I thought about it most of the time. There was one other rumor that was mentioned in this article, and it wasn't quoted by anybody, and there weren't any sources quoted or anything like that. But this rumor said that legendary NFL coach Joe Gibbs was starting a NASCAR team. Whatever became of that one? Did we ever hear anything else about that one, Joe Gibbs' race team? I can't remember, Rick. I really think I think it was a flash in the pan. I'm Steve Meal, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey, Steve, why don't you check that oil temperature for me? Uh, is the price right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> and my name is Rick Houston, and welcome. What was that? Uh, the alarm system. Jeannie evidently went out the front door. So. Oh, okay.